So the complexity comes from this desire to always be over delivering, always overworking, always overproducing so that we can say, oh, you know, I'm doing enough. I'm good enough. I'm valuable enough. And it is just not worth it. It's not worth it because it doesn't work. This is Show Your Business Who's Boss. Listen in on behind the scenes, unfiltered conversations with my favorite business owner friends who take charge and make their businesses work for them. Don't just be your own boss. Show your business who's boss. I'm Pia Silva. On today's episode, I am so excited to have badass business owner Tara McMullen. Tara is a coach, community builder, podcaster, producer, and writer. She is the founder of What Works, a digital platform for small business owners who are building strong, resilient, and sustainable companies. And she's the founder of Yellow House Media, which you may recognize from the credits at the end of this show every week. That's right. That's how I know Tara, because her company is the reason that I even have a podcast every week. Anyway, she's a brilliant thinker, strategist. She has her own podcast, What Works, which has been downloaded over 2 million times. She's also an international speaker, and she has been featured in Fast Company, Forbes, Inc., and The Huffington Post. I am delighted to share this conversation with you today where we go deep on topics around being overworked business owners, what it really takes to find that freedom and flexibility in our business, how simplicity is usually the answer to business challenges, and that human tendency to add and look for more things to do whenever we have problems that need solving when subtraction might be the best solution. So buckle up. Here we go. Of course, I follow you on Instagram and you have amazing, amazing content there. I found your a little post that you wrote a couple of weeks ago introducing yourself mm. and I loved it. And you mentioned how your first blog was uh, craft and maker, maker and craft mm-hmm. blog, which I don't know what that means. Am I supposed to know what that means? Well, like a blog for crafters and people who make things like Etsy people. Okay. Gotcha. So that was your first business. That was my first business. Yes. Technically my first blog was in college on Zanga and I wrote things that are slightly actually more what I write about today than even crafting and making is. But yeah, I was writing about a philosophy of religion and politics and just kind of whatever crossed my mind that I had something to say about, but that was back in 2004. So yes, fast forward to 2009, first business was a maker and craft blog. And what were your, what were you making and crafting? I'm also a, a former crafter, so. So <laughs> I was not making and crafting anything oh. other than the blog. Okay. I have always been a craft enthusiast as in like consumer enthusiasts. Yeah, and I am not super crafty myself. And so my, like it literally was just kind of channeling all of my interest in following what was happening with the independent maker business movement then, which, you know, 2009 was 
I mean, it's a few years after Etsy, Etsy launched, but it certainly had not gone mainstream yet. And so I was super interested in that. I was really interested in the growing market scene. So like people in the independent market scene, not just, you know, the old kind of stuffy old people kind yeah. of craft markets, but like the hip new ones uh, with lots of young people doing their thing. And so the blog was chronicling that. And specifically, it was about makers in Pennsylvania. It was called handmadeinpa.net. And, and so I would go and research people that were making cool stuff and then I'd write them up on the blog and eventually people started asking for advice when it came to like how they should be blogging or what they should be doing social media wise and so that's sort of how I got into the the business of digital marketing and helping business owners think about how to present themselves online in a way that was actually going to benefit them financially. Wow. Wow. It re so it really goes back to 2004, though. I mean, you've been writing yeah. online before people knew what that was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's pretty early. Yes. And if I had only stuck with it then, <laughs> like, <laughs> if I had not taken that five year hiatus, I think I'd be in a very different place right now thinking about where those OG bloggers who did stick with it have ended up. And just sold this, the advertising space. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, it's it served you well because you're still a blogger. You're just blogging yep. about business. Wait, so then how did you learn is this all self-made? Like, what'd you do in those five years? In those five years, I was doing retail management. So I was managing a Borders Books and Music, and that was that was a really helpful learning process in a lot of different ways because Borders, and this is partially, part, you know, what contributed to their demise. But Borders really allowed each individual store to run in, as independently as possible within a Fortune 500 company. And so we had a lot of say in what kind of products we were ordering, how we were running the store, how we were merchandising things and talking to customers. And so that did actually give me a really good look into the decision-making process behind, you know, building a business. Wow. Obviously I had tons of resources behind me, even when it didn't feel like that, but I, you know, I learned to make better decisions with the time and the money and the people that I had access to, to grow the business, you know, year over year, week after, or week over week. And that was, that was really helpful. And I think it's where I started to really get the itch to go into entrepreneurship. And I can remember, I remember this conversation so distinctly that I was talking on the phone with my mom and I was frustrated with the long hours and the incredibly low pay at this job and everything that was demanded of us. And I was trying to figure out what I was gonna do next because my original plan had been grad school and going into a, a religious studies PhD program and blah, blah, blah. But I'm talking to her and I say, all right, you know, it would be really great if I could just get people to pay me to tell them what to do with their businesses. And this is like <laughs> before I one before oh, I even knew that was a from thing. The same cloth. I know. I didn't say businesses. I just said tell them what to do. Yes, <laughs> but it's almost the same. 
Yeah, and I had no idea that was even a thing. Like, I did not know yeah. that that's called consulting, and right. that is that it's a thing that people make a lot of money at. And you know, maybe I could get an MBA. That would be helpful. I, obviously, I didn't go that direction, but it it's still very funny to me now to think back on that conversation and be like, yeah, that's literally what I get paid for today. People yeah. pay me to tell them what to do with their businesses. <laughs> We are where we are meant to be. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's so cool. And that makes a lot of sense, actually, now. I mean, that experience that that would lead you here and also that you were attracted to that experience. You probably wouldn't have stayed in that job if you hadn't had that kind of autonomy yeah. to build yeah. that business. You know, in so many ways, it was a great job. And in so many ways, it wasn't. I mean, they really banked on, and I think this has kind of become cliche at this point, but they banked on it being a great work environment and that every person there would feel like it was a privilege to work in a bookstore. And in so many ways it was, but it didn't justify paying me $28,000 a year for 50 hours a week of management work mm -hmm. and being on call and being responsible for all these things and having the key codes and right. <laughs> all of that. It wasn't worth it, but it was in well, many ways. it was ways. worth it. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> I mean, you stayed and you got a great education from it. And they, yeah, they were banking on wide-eyed, I, I, I mean, maybe this is wrong, idealistic intellectuals like you to fight the good fight and take less pay and yep. enjoy all the learning and paying you less for it. Yeah, that is that was their business model, essentially, <laughs> or their it. HR model. Yes, that's how you make that, money, but yes. you can get by for a little bit until you get crushed by Amazon. Yep, that that's borders in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. So that sounds like an amazing experience. I would have loved something like that. I, I dicked around different things, but always trying to have that autonomy. Sounds mm. like you had that autonomy. And that's really what you're trying to do in your 20s, just like try things and not have the answer. And so then you went back to writing. And mm -hmm. I think it's so important to realize like the theme I see in, in so many, especially business coaches, but just people who are really excelling in their in their field is that they write a lot or that they always wrote because the writing, I don't know about you, but my experience is the writing is how you kind of build the ideas and figure out what you think and how to teach people these ideas. Yeah, I mean, I think some people process ideas and information differently, but you're right. I see a lot of, yeah, I see, a, I see a lot of other people processing through writing as well. I was, I process through writing, you know, my college blog that was processing a lot of big feelings that I was having at the time and didn't know how to name and didn't know how to work through, but at least I could write about Bonhoeffer or, you know, some really esoteric subject. And it made me feel better and made me understand my place in the world a little bit better. And today it's very very much the same thing where I know I don't have all the answers. I know that, you know, what answers I have are sometimes locked away and I don't have access to them. But if I put myself through the process of writing it out, answering the questions, making the arguments, then I have a much more integrated perspective on what's going on in the world, what's going on with me, what's going on with the people that I work closely with. And so, yeah, writing has been just a incredibly valuable process for me. And it's I, something I do a lot. Yeah, you have these long posts on Instagram that are that you clearly are using kind of as processing, which I think yeah. is what's so good about them. It seems like 
it feels like off the cuff, but obviously you can't possibly be doing this <laughs> completely off the cuff. It's like, oh, this is what I'm dealing with today. And you know what? If I'm dealing with this, you might be too. And it, it feels very authentic because it's just you sharing your own experiences and how you process. Yeah. I mean, some sometimes, often, if I'm saying this is what I'm dealing with today, I really am dealing with it today. You and wrote I it today. To, <laughs> yeah, I wrote it today. I needed to write it out to figure out what was going on in my head. And I thought it might be useful to someone else. And I think that that's been a real shift in the way I produce content in the last four or five years is uh, it's kind of where I started out. And then as I you know, learned more about content marketing and I learned more about conversion marketing and I learned more about like what makes the customer journey work. I started to work that process as opposed to processing what I was thinking and what I needed to say and wanted to say and writing about it more organically. And so there were a couple of years in there where writing wasn't as fun, producing content wasn't as fun, people weren't as into it. <laughs> and I've gradually walked that back to be able to own that when I sit down to write something, it is part processing. And then, you know, sometimes I do write things too, where it is a culmination of like everything that I've learned about a particular topic. Like I have a 6,500 word piece dropping on Thursday that is everything I have learned about building simple business models and what the different options are and how they work. And so that's, you know, that is not a spur of the moment kind of piece of content. But so much of what I create actually is because I think it allows me to be in conversation with people instead of talking at them. And it also allows me to be true to sort of my, so I'm going to use a philosophical term because I've, I've been playing with this recently. It Processing through my writing and sharing what's on my mind today allows me to be true to my epistemic authority and epistemic authority essentially means what we are what we know and how we know it and what the source of that knowledge is so for instance i have a lot of epistemic authority when it comes to building small businesses but i but you not you but like the listener have epistemic authority when it comes to your business. And so by owning my experience and processing my experience, I can model that ownership of an individual experience and, you know, teach something or share something really valuable that also preserves the authority that you have over your own business knowledge. Can you clarify what the content was when it felt harder to write? and people weren't as responding as well to it. You said it was already processed. So what was it? Was it like teachy? Was it too explanatory? Not connecting to you to enough? Yes, it was. That content always had an agenda, right? It okay. had an agenda of me explaining something to someone in a way that then would make them want more or would make them want to buy. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, like, I hate to say that because at the same time, I still have an agenda today, right? Like I create content marketing to market what I do right. so that we can make sales as a company. Right. And 
for some reason, it feels qualitatively different. Today, the way I think about planning content and how I'm utilizing content, it's about creating the greater experience of what we offer. And part of what has changed is what we offer that allows me to do that. And so what I'm trying to do is create not such convincing, such smart content that of course you want to buy from me, of course you want to buy this thing that I'm selling, but instead um, looking at each piece of content as an invitation into what we can create together. And I think that that's what has fundamentally made the difference between my enjoyment in the writing process, but also people's engagement with actually reading what I write. Mm -hmm. And as a performer, there is nothing I want more than people to just engage with the thing that I am doing, right? Well, it just sounds like you also became a better marketer, <laughs> which is my <laughs> has been my experience too. And also as I, you know, as you do too, coach people in content marketing and all I can see the the evolution and it always starts in this more like trying to be something because you've never mm -hmm. done it before but really good marketing my best articles like you know when I do my best work it's always from a more impassioned place or you know, similarly, it's so much easier if you're dealing with the thing because then you can just write about what you're thinking and how you're feeling and how you're processing it or some of the best cues from my content have always been, you know, a client comes to me and they say this and or they're dealing with this and I'm like, oh, let me help you with that. There's yeah, that word. I, yeah, <laughs> I often talk about it in terms of call and response. Mm. And the misconception is that as marketers, we're the ones calling and asking for our customers to respond. And in my opinion, it is the flip that our customers are calling. They're asking questions. They're saying they're confused. They're telling us what their goals are. They're putting out their stories and and their needs out into the world in all sorts of different places. And it's our job to respond to those things as marketers. And when we can be in the response role as content creators, then I think that content gets engaged with a whole lot more. It kind of feeds the process in a way that trying to be the caller does not allow for. That's a really interesting way to put it. I'd never heard it put like that before. I, and I, I think that that is, that is reflected in the kind of content marketer that you are I'm a similar one. Like we create lots of content in, mm -hmm. on lots of di different platforms. And, you know, I, I get bogged down sometimes when I've seen ads, for example, of people saying like, you know, you don't need to, what, they tell you to write a blog for five years and they think that's going to help. And aren't you so overwhelmed <laughs> by the idea? And I'm like, hello, that is how you create that bigger foundation for that longevity of your business. Yes, creating a lot of content is how you build that authority. And that's what you've been doing too. And it's a long game is my point. About yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, another thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is the difference between building an audience and attracting clients. And mm -hmm. I completely agree in with playing the long game of creating lots of content, of building that uh, that foundation of authority, like you said, when it comes to the kinds of businesses that require an audience for growth. But what I don't think there's enough distinction with when it comes to the people selling how to do content marketing or how to do social media marketing is that not every business needs an audience to succeed and that plenty of businesses are making shit tons of money without an audience, but with a really robust referral source or really great search engine optimization. And that's all they've needed to build an agency or a one-on-one -on -one coaching business. And they're making good money and they're not spending all their time doing marketing. And so, yeah, I, I would love your take on, on that distinction. Absolutely. I mean, I have been actually really trying to coach uh, people who are under 100K mm -hmm. in the service space. Like you can definitely hit $100,000 a year without any content. You know, we did $500,000 without any content. Mm -hmm. It really, that has, that lower tier of revenue, it, it's not that many sales. And it's really just about really strong reputation and a couple of great referral sources or a reputation, you know, amongst people that you actually know. And only then do you even have the time to create this huge content foundation that we're talking about, right? That's not how you get your first 50 sales. <laughs> it's no. not through content because it's a long-term game. So I usually tell people that content is the long the long game and it is a long game that can get you that can generate revenue and sales for forever after as it snowballs but it takes so much upfront work you have to that has to be the game you want to play so i completely agree there's plenty of people who just live off of referrals and they spend their time doing something different they spend their time nurturing those referrals coming up with strategies to get in front of people maybe their strategy is just that they go to a couple of conferences a year and stay in touch with a couple of people and and something i see you say a lot that i love you always come back to the simplicity of it. It's like, mm. stop making it so complicated. And we all make it more complicated than it needs to be because it feels like if it's not working, it needs complication to work when really it's just about, no, the couple of pieces that are simple need to be fixed. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. So one of, oh man, I have so many thoughts on this. A few days ago, one of our community members at What Works posted an article, and I cannot remember what the source was, but the gist of the article was that our brains are hardwired to identify additive solutions as opposed to subtractive solutions. Mm. And so anytime we perceive a problem, a challenge, an obstacle, we ask ourselves, what more can we do to overcome that? And we never look at, well, how could I overcome this by doing less? And so often, especially in business, the answer is to do less. Oh, that's so good. To... Hold on. Hold on. Yeah, that's yeah, so yeah, good. Yeah. So give us an example. Well, I'll give you an example from my own content generation. This year, I made the decision that I really, really wanted to focus on what I'm calling remarkable content. I am not putting 
anything out just to put something out. I am only putting out things that I am excited about, that I know other people are going to be excited about. I don't have to be 100% certain because there's no way to be 100% certain. And I've certainly had some misses this year, whether that was my fault or the algorithm's fault, I don't know. <laughs> but I am really focused on making every single thing I put out really exceptional and remarkable. And it's been wonderful as a creator and as a writer and a thinker. But the other thing that that has required of me is to remove the impetus to always be creating extra or even to always be creating things for individual platforms. So, you know, in the past, I might have created a piece of content for the What Works Network, a piece of content for the What Works podcast, a piece of content for What Works Weekly, the newsletter, and then Instagram content and Twitter content and Facebook content, right? And those would all be slightly different things. This year, my focus is instead of creating all of that extra content saying, all right, I have a particular idea. Does this idea fit the podcast better? Does it fit the newsletter better? Once I have crafted out that content, then I say, okay, how do I turn this into an Instagram post? And I'm using these kind of slide deck visual essay things to communicate a core piece of whatever that main piece of content is in a way that still respects the medium that mm -hmm. Instagram has become. And so through that process, even though I am producing a crap ton of content every single week, I'm actually producing a hell of a lot less than I used to, but the impact of that content is exponentially higher than when I was trying to do all sorts of different things all at once. That makes a lot of sense. And and part of that is just repurpose, guys. Leverage. Yes. Like that is the the name of the game. I think a lot of people are not aware of how much you can repurpose content because they're I know I used to be worried, oh, but if they see this in two places, then what? I don't know. I don't know what I thought. <laughs> but I was you know worried what? about it. <laughs> yeah. You know what happens if people see things in more than one place? They, they learn it better. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they remember it. They learn it better. What I've what I've kind of picked up, this was sort of a hypothesis, but it has certainly proved itself out, is that if I write a three thousand word article on my blog that is really geared essentially to people who do already know, like, and trust me, the people who are subscribers, the people who listen to the podcast, if I turn that content into something that is geared to an audience that doesn't know who I am, but still contains the same ideas and put that on Instagram, that the people who loved the blog post will share that Instagram post with their followers. And I see mm -hmm. it happen week after week after week. And it is so much fun to realize that repurposing isn't just, you know, it's not just copying and pasting from place to place. It's thinking about this idea I've spent a bunch of time on, how can I make the most out of this idea as I look at these distrib different distribution channels, the different types of audiences that I wanna be in front of, the different goals that I have for the business, and then rework that same piece of content in different ways to satisfy all of those different needs. Mm. This was an example of doing less. It still sounds like quite a bit. I actually have a question about <laughs> I actually have a question about how you like manage your time because you have so many things going on, but we'll get to that. We were talking about 
simplicity and yes. <laughs> and simplifying things, doing less to make more, which I love that. I mean, if, if only you take away that today, guys, it's how can I take away something to get a better result as opposed to adding? Yes, our brains are always adding. I'm certainly always looking for the way to solve the problem, which is always an additive solution. So good. Okay. So I know I like totally broke your train of thought, but you were like, okay, and number two. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so number two is cultural. And there's there's a book that I read last month that I cannot stop quoting, that I just love so much. It resonates with me so deeply. It's called Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. It's by a thinker and an, a writer named Anne Helen Peterson. And she really gets into all of the cultural forces and systemic forces at play that have caused and are causing millennials to be the first generation that's not better off than our parents. And especially as an elder millennial, I just I just relate 100% to everything that she shared. But one of the lines, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but one of the lines that really jumped out at me is that without a psychology altering intervention, as when we associate with good work, with overwork, we will never shake that. Mm. And we'll never shake that, not only for ourselves, but the others that we work with as well, where our expectation is that good work equals overwork, good work equals over delivering, good work equals butt in chair 12 hours a day, mm -hmm. right? And so we, we put those expectations on ourselves and we put those expectations on others. And what I see is people actually playing that out in the way they plan for and model their businesses as well. So the complexity comes from this desire to always be over delivering, always overworking, always overproducing so that we can say, oh, you know, I'm doing enough. I'm good enough. I'm valuable enough. And it is just not worth it. It's not worth it because it doesn't work, right? Like overworking, over delivering constantly, overproducing constantly is is only causing your traction to slow. It's only causing your mindset to get mired in all of the muck. Whereas if we can pull way back and simplify a lot, we suddenly have a much better vantage point for making strate better strategic decisions and figuring out how to approach things with more simplicity. Oh my gosh. I'm sure every entrepreneur I know can relate to that concept of relating overwork to good, really, right? Mm -hmm. We're all raised to think that working hard is a positive thing. I mean, you wouldn't say, well, working hard is bad, right? That's That's got a very positive connotation. That reminds me, I, I don't remember all the details, but I know you listen to the Vox podcast with Ezra mm -hmm. Klein, right? He did a great episode a couple of months ago about the meritocracy of our generation and how we mm -hmm. associate w what is good in our lives with merit-based things and so we like our work is our identity and that is why people of our generation especially but you know of all generation many generations mm -hmm. alive today can't relax like when we don't have work to do we a lot of people have a hard time knowing what makes them happy and doing things just for the sake of doing them because it doesn't come with if it doesn't have some sort of merit based outcome then it doesn't have value to us because we were taught that. And so to your point, it's like you said, take a 
big step back. It's like, I don't know, a big step back is like not having a business <laughs> to me because <laughs> I, I put so many structures in place in my business for the exact reason you're talking about. I, I put limitations around my work so that I cannot overwork, mm -hmm. but I, I, I can know it's there. I can see it. I can put the boundaries in place. I can live that life, but it doesn't mean that my mind isn't still in that place. So as much as we're trying to change, you know, we want to work differently. I mean, it's like until you change the feeling inside, it's not going to go away. Oh, I completely agree. Oh, okay. I could take this a couple of like so many different places. One, what you're just talking about reminds me of a question that completely threw me on my ass a few years ago. Um, and it was on the Hurry Slowly podcast with Jocelyn K. Gly. And this question threw me on my ass so hard, I had to stop listening to that podcast for a while because I just was not ready to like move on from that question and I needed to like slowly process it for years. It's very simple. The question was, who are you without the doing? Be and I couldn't answer it. And I still can't answer it and I can explain why in a second. But, you know, I can only understand my own identity through the things that I do right? I coach business owners. I build communities. I produce podcasts. I'm a runner. I'm a weightlifter. I'm a climber. I'm a mom. Those are, those are actions to me. And those actions dictate my identity and my sense of self. And I think what I've kind of learned about this question is that it is not necessarily a question that has an answer, but it's the question itself that's valuable. It's sort of like a koan, like, uh, there is no way I can, you know, it's like the sound of one hand. What is the sound mm -hmm. of one hand clapping? There's no answer. The point isn't the answer. The point is the contemplation. And so I've really been trying to sit with that question of like, okay, if I'm not doing this thing, if I'm not coaching clients, if I'm not building a community, if I'm not producing a podcast, how does that impact my identity? How does that impact my sense of self, my sense of value, my sense of worth? And most of the time still, those the answers that I come up with to those questions are horrible. Like they're not good. <laughs> I have not internalized this, but I have an understanding, I think a better understanding anyway, of what I'm working toward. The other thing that I wanted to comment on is you had said about like, if we want to build these businesses where we're working differently, you know, what does that kind of take from a mindset perspective? And that's another question I've been wrestling with a lot lately as well is like, I think that we build our businesses for these values, these priorities, even beyond uh, financial value, right? Self-expression, flexibility, more time to spend with our families, more time to spend in our communities, making an impact there. And yet we reproduce the structures that we are accustomed to. And so we don't have more flexibility. We don't have more time to spend with our families. We don't have more capacity for self-expression or community impact. And I think that's something that we need to really get right with as we think about structuring our businesses and what it would look like to to pull away all of the things that reduce our flexibility or reduce our personal capacity or the time that we have to spend outside of work and and reclaim those personal priorities for ourselves 
that's a profound question that everybody has to ask themselves that I, I, I find myself along the line of the doing is mm -hmm. like trying to answer that quandary with, again, structures, things to do. How can I <laughs> change the structure of this business? And what I, what I am finding, I've been finding over years is ultimately you can do that all day long, but until you kind of get right with how it feels inside, like to your point, who are you without all of these things? Can you just mm -hmm. sit in a room, have none of those things and be okay? If you can't, then all those changes to your business and all those structural changes in the world are never going to change how you feel. This is either brilliant and profound or so obvious and, <laughs> and lame but i you know have this i wouldn't even call it a working theory it seems obvious that you know we build businesses to like deal with our issues or like to, mm -hmm. in, to in response to whoever we are and i i kind of noticed it over time especially brand shrinking so many people going deep into people's businesses and really getting and, and just seeing it so obviously oh like this tells me so much about you as a person that you would build this business you know and i could tell you slice it many different ways how my business in so many different ways are, are there to deal with the things that I want to deal with right and actually to do the very things that I may feel like I'm lacking so you know it started with badass brands worst of all design like that is a reflection of wanting to be myself and like don't tell me I can't do something I can't do but that's not because I'm so bold it's because I like struggle with that right so anyway my my point is that why I built this business for freedom and flexibility and all of those things. And in at many moments in the last few years, I've had all of those things. And I've had this profound sadness in those moments because I'm like, I have mm. all of those things. Why do I not feel like I have all of those things? Oh, shit. That's not going to go away. <laughs> no matter. I could have all the money in the world and nothing to do. And I will still feel like this because this is not an external thing. This is an internal <laughs> issue that can't be fixed by external fixes. <laughs> I think that building a business is this amazing personal development experience and this this exercise in getting to know yourself and all of the shadow parts that you wish weren't there and yeah. you know resolving things and working through things that have been present for a very very long time. And I think that for me, I started a business, I, or I started down the path of business building is probably a better way to say it, to create a space and a container where I could fully utilize the skills and passion that I had, that I thought that I could offer to the world, but that I had no container for, right? Mm. Like I have a BA in religious studies. I'm a grad school dropout before I even ended up in grad school. I have five years of retail management under my belt. Like I am not technically qualified to do anything, or at least I wasn't <laughs> back in 2009. And I felt so underutilized in the world and I just wanted to feel of use. And I think that there was a lot of merit to that and there was a lot of merit to creating that container. And to your point, 
the business itself, no matter how well it's going, no matter how big the container is, no matter how useful I genuinely am in that business, it is never going to feel the fill the hole that is the cause of wanting to feel useful, which mm. is the motivation to prove my worth and prove my value. And so while yes, being useful and being of use and utilizing my skills is a is a good solid foundation motivation to build a business on there's sort of this per there's this undercurrent of something that is not so positive that can't be dealt with in the business it has to be dealt with in the inner work and that's something that i've really only started to come to terms with in the last few years and it's something that is very much a part of the work i do every single day now and it's it's part of the it's part of what to bring us full circle allows me to be able to share whatever i'm dealing with on any given day and actually get it out of my head write it down and post it without giving it a second thought without being able to do that work and ask those really hard questions and and really interrogate my motivation I couldn't do that. But that's the those are the things that people really resonate and really connect with and and not just in terms of like building a relationship with me, but in terms of actually doing something with it, right? Making use of it themselves. And to me that's really exciting and that's really the point, right? That's so interesting also that you kind of summed it up for you as usefulness. Like I like usefulness wouldn't be mine, but it ultimately yeah. goes to the same like, well, what's my value? What am I worth? Like it always comes back to the feeling of, you know, am I valuable in the world? Like, am I okay just the way I am? Or do I need to do all of these things to be okay or good or a better person? But but figuring out like what that that word is or concept is for you can be very helpful in guy in like guiding how you then move your business forward. And I, I think I'm not sure exactly, but I know that one other one of mine is more like, like feeling heard, like wanting to mm -hmm. feel heard for, for what I ha say. And it's okay. Whatever I say, that's why I'm pushing people so much to like say their, their piece and like do your own thing and like that's a big thing for me so my met so if you look at all my stuff guys like you can totally psychoanalyze me and see that all over the place i'm just saying over and over again like can i just be me <laughs> like can i just say and it be okay are you familiar with the enneagram yes i'm also a three a okay or no doesn't it also have a, a number? Definitely yeah, it's a, it's a three, and then you'd have a you could have a wing, so a wing two or a wing four. Oh, I, I had a wing. I don't I, I don't a, remember which one it was. Yeah, <laughs> to me, what you're describing very much lines up with the Enneagram because the, one of the really interesting things in that system is that it's identifying our motivation and mm. not just sort of like motivation on a big picture level, but like any action that we take, any conversation that we start, there is that thread of a particular motivation behind it. So like threes are motivated by that desire to prove our worth, to prove our value. And that's where our ambition, right? It, it manifests as ambition mm. comes from. I wasn't sure if you 
you were going to type as a three or an eight, because what you're describing in terms of like speaking your piece and getting other people to speak their piece, like that sounds very eight to me. Sean is a nine and nines are really driven by peacemaking. They're the peacemakers. And I see that in the way he works with our podcasting clients so that even when he's really frustrated and people aren't meeting deadlines and the project management is all like all confused and kerfluffled he's trying to make it better for everyone involved even oh my gosh you know, such a saint <laughs> he is a saint, exactly. But like, that's how he shows up. Right. And it's what's built into the business in a lot of ways as well. And so, you know, I'm not an Enneagram like religious nut. I'm not like it doesn't it doesn't dictate everything that I do. But for me, it's been an incredibly helpful tool in understanding why I do the things I do, how it shows up in negative ways and how it shows up in positive ways. And my goal is to always be leaning into those positive things. Mm. And I think very much that the the course of my business and the way I think about business has gone from some not so positive patterns very much into positive patterns that make me feel good about the way I show up on a day-to-day basis and create really great results in the business as well. Yeah, I, I love that. And I find with everybody that anything that is your greatest strength is also your your potentially biggest weakness, right? I mean, my my yeah. the things that make my business go, like that ambition, that is also the thing I'm constantly working against, <laughs> right? Yep. Because that that's what you do too too much. And it's not a it's not a bad thing. And I guess that's the whole game of life. (laughs) If we could sum it up, it's just try to lean into the positive parts of your strengths and not let the negative side of it consume you Mm -hmm. because it, because it will, because of that yin yang of whatever that characteristic is or whatever that like force within you is pushing you forward. I have to revisit it. I I did the Enneagram. I did, I did it a couple months ago because my cousin sent it to me and she she was like, I knew it <laughs> as soon as I sent her. I didn't even know what it was. I just like did the thing. All, all those, I feel like I'm so extreme. Whenever I take those personality tests, I'm always like, uh, like whenever I read it, I'm like, yeah, like I could have just read these and told you which one I am. <laughs> well, so really that's actually the best way to type yourself as an Enneagram, as as I understand it. Oh, really? Is that the, yeah, the tests can be gamed. Also, threes are notorious test gamers. Like if I have a result that I think that I should be, or like I'm, you know, always trying to get it right. right. So I will game any test I take. And so for a long time, I was gaming the Enneagram to give me a type five. And and so I was mistyped for a while and I didn't super resonate with it. What's a five? Wait, why do you want to be a five? A five is the person that is obsessed with knowledge and like Ah. the super curious personality. They're, They're driven by having to understand the nuances of every little thing and kind of like encyclopedic knowledge. And Mm. that, like, I have positive qualities. Yeah, Yeah, I have those qualities, but it's not my driver. Mm. My driver is finding a feeling of being okay, right? Like, that's what (laughs) drives me. And that's very much a three. So... I would say, yes, just go and read the different descriptions. The other thing that I find really helpful is looking at how each type presents in an unhealthy way and how it presents in a healthy way. So I can look back at like, 
five or six years ago when I was really frustrated and really burnt out and also just not being super effective and look at the unhealthy ways that a three presents and be like, oh, that was me and I needed to work my way back up to to utilizing these things in a healthy way. And so sometimes I think we can mistype because we're trying to type against the prototypical Enneagram profile would really, we might be in more of a place where we identify with the unhealthy part of it. Mm, that's such a good idea. I'm doing that as soon as we get off this call. Okay. <laughs> and we should if you link, need links, just let me know. We should link to it in the show notes so everyone okay. can do it. I had a guest like months ago who, who said he like does the personality test for himself and for all of his employees and stuff to kind of use all of that information to structure people's days, structure their tasks and all of that. And I thought that was so brilliant and I totally forgot about it. But this is reminding me I'm going to do it. That's so smart. Okay. So real quick, not quick. Tara, I keep sending people to your amazing business, Yellow House Media, where you produce podcasts such as this one. And I keep hearing that you guys are busy. So tell me about your business. <laughs> Just tell everybody really quick because it's such a great model. And I think I read something in your post that said, you know, keep it simple and just do it really well. And I could, and that would be the perfect description of how you run Yellow House Media. I think it, that's why I keep sending people to you. I'm like, just hire them because they're, they just do it all so well, which is not a great referral actually, but it's true. <laughs> uh, right. It's like, no, no, actually though, they just do it really, really well. Yeah. yeah. Like, how did you end up starting that? outside of your other business and why and how's it going why can't you so, take my clients yeah so yellow house media came from well it came from a lot of different places but i think the part that's probably the most useful is that it came from useful. yeah i'm gonna be so <laughs> useful here it came from seeing a huge gaping gap in the market, which was that I knew there were lots of people doing podcasts, lots of business owners doing podcasts as marketing. There were lots of those business owners, podcasters, outsourcing different parts of the production process. You know, they'd hire an editor who could make the make the necessary cuts in the show and pull tracks together and, and make it sound good and get it ready for their podcast feed. There were people outsourcing to virtual assistants who had experience with podcasting and they'd help them work work on their feed, upload things to where the different places they needed to be uploaded, create promotional graphics and things like that. But it meant that the podcaster was always having to be the chief project manager. And on top of that, there was another piece of the, or another missing piece of the puzzle for these podcasters, and that was content strategy. There were so many people offering content strategy as it applied to writing articles and posting to your blog, writing email marketing, creating posts for social media, but literally no one that I knew of was doing content strategy specifically for podcasts. And it was something that personally as a podcaster, I had struggled with for a number of years. Like, I know this is good for business. I know that I could probably be more strategic about it, but I don't know how that would look. And so it took a lot of experimentation and ultimately it took realizing that I could sell things straight from my podcast. I don't have to get them on my email list. I don't have to get them to follow me on Instagram. These people are super invested. I can I can just create content that makes them want to buy. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's exciting. 
So I took all of that knowledge and started to work with Sean on what a package would look like that actually covered all of those bases. So that instead of just offloading the podcast editing or some of the admin tasks, that we could help podcasters do what any kind of content creator I think always says is the dream, which is, I just want to make the content. Right. Just show so up. Like, just yeah. show up. So literally, it's like, what all can we take off their plate? We can take everything off their plate except doing the interviews or making the solo episodes and maybe a little extra writing, a little extra scripting from here and there. We can do everything else and we have systems for it because we've built them out over years with what works. And so that was how sort of the initial package got born. And I thought it was going to be a hard sell. I don't know what I was thinking, but I thought it was going to take a lot of time to fill our client roster and that mostly at the beginning, what we were going to be doing was content strategy, the, the content strategy piece, helping people plan their editorial calendars. And that sold easily too, but what we did not expect was that within the first four months of offering podcast production, our capacity was maxed out. So then we had to hire more people, we maxed it out again, we're hiring more people now, we're not booking until September, and I think those spots are gone, which means we're really not booking until 2022 at this point, wow. unless we do something crazy. But I think the biggest uh, thing that I've learned building out Yellow House as it applies to simplicity is that strong boundaries and being willing to say no make a business so much easier to run, right? So like there have been so many times when people are like, oh, I, you know, I can't afford your full service. Can I just hire you to do the editing? No, you can't because every exception that we make every time we say yes when we shouldn't it gums up the works we have a process that we follow for literally every single client the only difference is whether they release weekly or every other week and we're, we're thinking about getting rid of the every other week part don't tell our every other week clients no <laughs> they, it wouldn't affect that it would yeah, only affect yeah. you know why not forward. like keep it simple like i mean that's yes. the way i even think about it that's what makes you so easy to refer by the way it's like yeah. oh they take care of everything this is how much it is it's a no-brainer and that's the other piece too is like for the right person it is absolutely a no-brainer yeah. that is not to say that every podcaster with a small business should hire us no right. it does it's not an investment that makes sense for everybody but for the people who make it, it makes sense for they are our clients for life like yeah. we don't lose clients we just gain clients and also have to tell people i'm sorry but we can't take you now and what i love about it from the perspective of somebody who's constantly teaching people how to simplify their business models, right? Because that's really mm -hmm. where I play is like, get rid of all those things. Just one thing, maybe at three levels. I don't even think you have different levels. Nope. No different levels. One thing. I've told people, you know, I say basically one thing, upsell, downsell, but it makes it, it makes it really easy to buy, but you've also taken 
everything off their plate. So similarly to our brand up, it's like, let me just take care of that for you. You don't need to even understand all that. I mean, that's what I loved about it was when I, I shouldn't even be talking about your services and pitching them. Like this is a waste for your business because you can't, <laughs> because you can't hire them, <laughs> but We're you will be able to in the future. Yeah, yes. they're working on it. Maybe, maybe you'll find some amazing hires and you will have some spots open up in uh, September. But anyway, so, you know, from my perspective, I was like, I don't know the first thing about this. I, I'm sure I could figure it out. I have a background in marketing. It's not like I can't figure this stuff out, but oh man, they'll just tell me exactly what to do and I'll just have to show up and do it. I can, that sounds so much better. <laughs> and that has <laughs> truly been it. And even with the strategy, I appreciate the strategy, but I'm like, I don't even have time for the strategy. Like I'm just going to show up and do my episodes. <laughs> we'll get to the strategy later, Tara. <laughs> <laughs> but it's working for you. But it's working for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, I think that's, there is strategy in that, right? You know what your people want to hear. You know the kinds of conversations they want you to have, the things that they're most interested in. And you know really well how that ties back into your offer. And so while we might not be working a month-by-month -month content strategy with you, that overall content strategy is baked into the very concept of the show to begin with. And that's a thing that so many people miss. I literally was just recording uh, a video for our um, community, our, our membership site for uh, called Standout Podcast Club. So that is a thing that people can hire, quote unquote, hire us for. But where I was talking about exactly that, what's the value proposition behind your podcast? And how does it fit into the rest of the offers that you have on the table? Because once you know that value proposition, it impacts the content that you create. And even if you work nothing else, knowing that value proposition is going to direct your content in a way that's beneficial mm -hmm. to your business. Mm -hmm. I love it. It is set, It is so on point as a business. It's a great model that in any other industry you can model. The idea of doing this one thing really well, the market is clear, the offer is clear, it's soup to nuts, it takes care of it. And I mean, from my perspective as a client, it's like, oh, your processes are so dialed in and to create these processes would be such a you know a minefield from scratch but that's that's what a business is it's like you put a lot of effort into that into that base process and how everything works once you create all of those processes to take people through a brand up for example like you get to repeat that over and over and over again but that's your intellectual property that is the value that they're paying for and it doesn't take any more of your time once you've created those structures and then you just get to show up you know tara shows up on the call and we do the strategy for an hour and it's like brilliant and she doesn't need to necessarily be there doing all these little steps because the, the process does that so that is such a great model for a business yeah, and because of my background in digital products and community building, it also means that because we have all of those processes, I can literally just take them and plop them into a membership site and say, all right, these are all of the processes and all of the kind of strategic thinking that we do with our full service production clients. There is no, like there's, there's no watering it down at all. It's literally the same worksheets, mm. the same SOPs. And if, if anything, just with better explanations <laughs> and, and right. then have people pay for that on a monthly basis. Right. And, you know, we're really still just getting started with that. But I know that given 
time and energy and doing the things that I know how to do really well, we can take that IP that we've developed mm. for our service clients and turn that into a super lucrative digital product over there. Gotcha. So is that a membership site? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Oh. Stand Up Podcast Club. You can find it on our Yellow House website or just standoutpodcast.club. And it's a community built on Mighty Networks, which is the same platform that we use for the What Works Network. But unlike the What Works Network, it really is built around these central processes that we use. And so our pre-production process, our development process, our distribution process, plus a whole bunch of just like podcasting 101. I know you don't know how these things work. Like, let me explain it to you stuff is all in there. And it's the same kinds of conversations that we have with our clients every month. It's literally the same process, the same worksheets. And yeah, it's wow. I think it's super valuable. <laughs> wow. No, it sounds valuable. And that's your second community because you have the What Works Network. Yeah. You got a lot going on, Tara. What is that? I do. <laughs> so you already have built the What Works community and this is your second community. What's the difference? Great question. So the What Works Network is really, it's a collaborative learning experience. So our goal with What Works is to create a place where instead of us telling each other what we should be doing, we speak from our experience, our observations, the things that we know best of all. And it's a very non-hierarchical community by design. And because of that, we have the capacity to hold conversations with a lot of diverse perspectives. So we have productized service businesses, we have agency-based business, we have digital products-based businesses, coaching businesses, physical products-based businesses, because everyone's coming to the work of entrepreneurship through their individual lens and with a relative level of confidence in what they know about what works for them and what they want from their businesses. Whereas at Standout Podcast Club, it's a much more traditional model where mm -hmm. we are saying, look, I know you don't know how to do this stuff. You're we teaching. know how to do this stuff. Yes, it's much more a teaching model. Gotcha. We do, you know, I, I think I'm a community builder and a, collabor a collaborative trainer, facilitator at heart. And mm -hmm. so there is still a lot of like, this is how we do things, but like, what's working for you? How do you do this? And so we do kind of facilitate that type of conversation mm -hmm. too, but it is much more tr based on training. Very cool. And how long has that been in business? We sort of very gently, not at all, launched it at the in November of last year. And because I have so many things going on, I've not super duper marketed it. But we do have members that have joined just randomly because of different Your podcasts. Things. Yeah, the podcast, yeah. my existing audience, search. So yeah. we're getting there. Well, so and to your point earlier, like not everybody needs an audience, but if you want to do anything where scale is yes. the ultimate goal, then you absolutely do need an audience. And a, a quick tangent, because it always comes up, is like a lot of people want to build a community, a coaching program, a scalable thing, like, a, you know, quote, passive income, yada, yada, but all of those rely on audience, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I mean, some sort of audience, you either pay for the audience or you build the audience or you do both, but you can't, you can't build those networks through, I mean, networking, I don't think, maybe, 
No, you have to be marketing. <laughs> you have to be marketing. <laughs> I don't know. You might disagree think, with me. <laughs> I think there are models of community development that can grow from the inside out. So where you can sort of deputize your members to be your marketing engine. Mm. I'm not very good at that because I don't like asking people for things <laughs> because I'm me trying too. to prove my worth. God oh damn my it. Oh gosh, we're the same person. <laughs> <laughs> so I I continue to market all by my lonesome. Yep. Um, but yes, completely agree. And it's something that I t I've been talking about this a lot. It kind of goes back to that idea of between building an audience and, and an attracting clients. And, you know, I think of my primary job at What Works as content creator. Mm -hmm. It's what I spend 20 plus hours a week on. Oh, wow. And our business wouldn't work maybe not without me spending 20 hours, but my business wouldn't right. work if that wasn't my primary job. That is my job. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people want to build an online course, they want to build a community, but they don't actually want that job. And if you don't want that job, don't do those things. You can make more money doing other stuff. <laughs> yes, it's so much easier to make money just showing up and helping clients at high prices. <laughs> yes, then, so much easier. Yes, so much easier. I know, well, it's when people can't, when they haven't made that money yet, they think it looks easier. It looks easier to have lots of people buying things at lower prices and you don't have to show up to do the work and it, the grass is always greener guys it takes a lot well longer. and it's being sold as easier right like there are a lot of disingenuous marketers out there who are selling plans claiming that they're easy that they'll save you time that you make money in your sleep and it's bullshit. yeah it's, <laughs> and it's they're leaving out a really big part of the story <laughs> yes you exactly you absolutely at a certain point you absolutely wake up and there's money in your bank account <laughs> yes. and that's very exciting <laughs> but it takes a really long time and even at that point you're not not going into work and creating content for 20 hours a week. You're still doing that because you have to feed the beast. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned like the slow versus fast piece because I literally just put that in a, in a podcast episode for next week about Yellow House and like how if I were building what works again today, it would take years to get to the point where yeah. it was financially sustainable. But with Yellow House, we stood that up into a more than six figure business in no time because yeah. that kind of no marketing business, high prices, low client load is the fastest, easiest way to make money. But yeah. you can't sell online courses about that as easily as you can when you say you can make money in your sleep and all you have to do is post on Instagram. It's like, no, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> but also, you didn't pop that business open. So here's another thing. Like I basically started a new business this year and didn't worry about the cash flow issues because I already have an audience. So, you know, once you have that audience, you can pop open a new business, you can pivot, you can do lots of things. You have so much freedom and flexibility. If you guys were nobodies and nobody knew who you were and you had no content and you started Yellow House Media, you'd be at the networking groups at 7 a.m. Yep. Doesn't mean you wouldn't get them, but you'd have to be proving, you know, you'd have to be proving your worth to people. You'd have to be explaining it. You'd have to be convincing people to trust you, like all kinds of stuff that you didn't need to do because you already had that. Trust. Yeah, I, I think you either need to work your audience or work your network. I think is you're exactly yes. right. I you got to have we, a network. <laughs> right, but you got to have a network and you got to be willing to put time into, into networking. Yes. So 
Yeah. Yes. Agree. Well, bummer way to end this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. You can't make money in your sleep. You can, so but it doesn't sorry. look like what you think it's going to look like. <laughs> But I like to say the the great news is that nobody else can do it either. <laughs> so it's you're not not doing something other people are doing. Like they're, you know, and you absolutely can do it too. Like yes. what everybody's doing is something you absolutely can do and you just have to be okay with the fact that you are going to have to show up and do that and it does get easier the longer you do it and you learn a lot along the way. And that's the game. That's the game. And maybe you also deal with your inner conflicts at some point as well. Yes. <laughs> would be the moral of today's podcast. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a riveting conversation, Tara. I really appreciate you coming on and playing along with me with my non-outline and my no questions. I love it. <laughs> it's super fun. <laughs> I love flying by the seat of my pants. I have no problem with that. And I am super honored you asked me to be on the show. I, I, I knew you wouldn't mind. And so I appreciate you coming on. And thank you guys so much also just for everything you've done with this podcast. You guys are superstars and I can't sing your praises enough. Thank you. If you loved what Tara has to share, definitely go check out her podcast, What Works, and go follow her on Instagram at Tara underscore McMullen. We will link to it in the show notes at piasilva.com backslash podcast. As you know by now, I'm starting to take questions from you, the listeners, and I am offering personal coaching with me in return. So all you have to do is go leave a review on Apple Podcasts, include a question, and if I answer your question on the show, I will invite you to schedule a free 15-minute chat with me where I can help you get unstuck in your brand or your business. So go leave a question in your review right now so we can chat. And while you're there, you might as well make sure that you have hit the subscribe button so that you never miss a new episode. And if you love the show, please share it with a friend or on Facebook. Send someone a text. Send it in an email. I don't know. Share. Sharing is caring. Taking inspiration from Tara today, ask yourself, what is one thing that you are doing that is overcomplicating your business that you could possibly cut back on or even eliminate? I completely agree with Tara that we often have this additive approach to our businesses, but often cutting back is the real answer. That's why when we cut our services back from a menu of offers where we could do virtually anything because graphic designers can design anything, and we cut back to only offering one service, the brand up, our business exploded. So how can you simplify to progress? Ask yourself that question this week, and that may just be your next step to showing your business who's boss. Show Your Business Who's Boss is produced by Yellow House Media. Production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode is edited by Marty Seafelt. Production assistance by Kristen Runvik. Our theme music is Glass Prisms by Western Runners. 